Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled A Call to Action to Prevent Cervical Cancer in Transgender and Non-Binary Populations, Patient-Centered Strategies to Increase Screening Rates. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck and Company Incorporated. I am Dr. Asa Radix. I work at the Callan Lord Community Health Center in New York, where I am the Senior Director of Research and Education. This program is focused on increasing awareness about the need for cervical cancer screening for transgender men and or those who identify as non-binary. Transgender individuals are those whose gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth. Recent data show that approximately 1.3 million adults in the U.S. identify as transgender, and of those, 480,000 identify as transgender men, while 26% or so identify as non-binary. Cervical cancer is the fourth most common cause of cancer globally among cisgender women, and also the fourth leading cause of cancer mortality. Transgender men and non-binary individuals assigned female at birth have a similar prevalence of HPV and cervical cancer compared to cisgender women. One of the most important interventions to reduce deaths from cervical cancer is timely screening. The World Professional Association of Transgender Health Standards of Care recommend that trans individuals with a cervix undergo the same screening guidelines as for cisgender women. And this is also the same recommendation that has been given by ACOG. The American Cancer Society recommends that individuals with a cervix initiate cervical cancer screening at age 25 and undergo primary HPV testing every five years through age 65. Despite these recommendations for screening, research has shown that trans men and non-binary individuals who are eligible for screening are less likely to have it compared to cisgender women. One national survey among transgender individuals found that a third of trans individuals face discrimination in health settings, with a quarter delaying or foregoing medically necessary care. There are many reasons for this, including difficulty finding culturally competent and welcoming medical providers facing discrimination in health systems, such as harassment, being denied medical care, as well as other factors such as financial or insurance barriers. From a clinician standpoint, a 2015 survey of primary medical providers in the U.S. found that most lacked training on transgender health, although many were willing to provide care, including cervical screening to trans individuals. Personal experiences and biases, having met a transgender person and transphobia, predicted willingness to provide pap tests to transgender men. In this session, we reviewed some disparities in gynecological care in patients who are transgender men or identify as non-binary and reviewed the guidance for cervical cancer screening in these persons. Now let's review the importance of using gender-affirming care in clinical practice. In this session, we will discuss what clinicians should know about gender-affirming care. Gender affirmation is the process of recognizing, accepting, and expressing one's gender identity. And we know that gender affirmation reduces gender dysphoria, as well as improving other parameters such as mental health outcomes. Gender affirmation usually falls into different domains, and these can include social affirmation, which can include changing your name, your pronoun, your gender expression, how you dress. It can also include the legal domain, which includes changing your identity documents. And lastly, medical gender affirmation includes access to hormone therapy, for example, testosterone. About 70% of transgender men have used testosterone and about 13% of non-binary individuals assigned female at birth. And there are also a range of surgeries, including top surgery or mastectomy that about 21% have had. There are also genital reconstruction surgeries 
including phalloplasty and metoidioplasty, to create a new penis. Only 1% to 2% of people have had this surgery, and about 8% have undergone hysterectomy, either with or without ophorectomy. Now we'll discuss some of the unique challenges faced by individuals who decide to access gender affirmation. Individuals can experience insurance denials due to the mismatch between their gender marker and the sex-based screening that they're having. They also may not be flagged by the electronic health record for cervical screening because their legal gender is male. Some of the things that clinicians can do is first to advocate for changes to the electronic health record so that it documents both gender identity and assigned sex at birth so that they will continue to be flagged for cervical screening. Secondly, it's really important that clinicians contact insurers if they're aware that claims are being denied because otherwise this will create additional barriers for patients to access screening. It's really important that clinicians take a history of all surgeries that individuals have undergone, and this will help determine the need for cervical screening. For trans men and non-binary individuals who have excess testosterone, this can be associated with atrophic vaginitis and can result in inadequate cervical cytology results. It can also cause pelvic pain and vaginal dryness, which can cause some discomfort when they're undergoing a cervical pap. Clinicians should also consider using the small specular. They can also use some warm water and occasionally lidocaine. In the next session, we will hear from Michael, a transgender man sharing the challenges he faced when seeking gynecological care. Now let's hear from Michael. My name is Michael. I'm 33. I was assigned female at birth, which was something that never felt right, even at a very young age. After a lot of questioning and self-discovery, I believe I know myself better than ever. It was a long journey to figure out who I am. And after several years of deep introspection, I finally feel at home with the label as a transgender man. I've had some challenges with receiving gynecological care starting back when I had PCOS as a teen. And now as an adult trans male with a history of gynecological issues, getting the care I need has been even more difficult. I can share one example. I had a really troubling experience the first time that I had a pap smear. I chose a doctor specifically because I had been informed that the practice treated a lot of trans patients. And so they understood the type of dialogue to use to make the experience a little easier. Unfortunately, it was a nightmare. I had been very forward with the doctor about my apprehension and my fears about the appointment and about getting a pap smear. And I also explained that I had bond dysphoria, that this was my very first time doing this, and that I had a multitude of negative experiences with gynecological care during my youth. So this needed to be taken very slowly and things need to be explained to me in detail. Then the exam started and it was like the doctor hadn't heard a word that I said. The very first thing that she did was read off my dead name and that she accidentally used it several more times while it was in that office. She didn't tell you what she was doing during the exam. It was silent in the room and so incredibly uncomfortable, both emotionally and physically. Then once the exam was done, she didn't explain anything, just cleaned up her tools, told me the nurse would check in with me and left the room. I can't explain it, but I left feeling ashamed like I'd done something wrong. That's not how you should feel when you've placed vulnerability in the hands of someone you're meant to trust with your health. Deciding to finally conquer my fear after that entire ordeal, I finally set up an OBGYN appointment years later. While the situation wasn't as disconcerting as previous incidents, it was still fairly awkward and uncomfortable. The conversation with the nurse practitioner should have been about my medical history and reason for that day's visit, but instead she spent 20 minutes being fascinated about my story. 
asking why I chose the name I did, and other prying questions about my identity. The reason for that appointment was to help me manage the extreme pain that I've been having, but it was very clear that the invasive conversation superseded the actual reason that I was visiting. I want healthcare providers to know that it can take a lot of courage to seek out care, especially those of us who have had so many negative experiences in the past. Setting up an environment where everyone feels welcome will go a long way in building trust and making people feel comfortable. I hope that those who don't know a lot about the LGBTQ plus community will educate themselves so they can provide the best care possible for all of their patients. Thanks very much, Michael, for sharing your story. In the next session, let's discuss strategies for building an inclusive clinical practice. Let's discuss approaches that you can use in practice for promoting inclusive communication and an environment where all patients feel welcome. There are multiple strategies that you can implement to create a more inclusive environment even before a patient presents to your office. I think the first thing would be updating office signage, symbols, posters, and educational materials to be more inclusive. For example, you may consider changing women's health to be gender neutral. For example, reproductive and gynecologic health. You should also consider having bathroom signage that welcomes all genders and single stall bathrooms whenever possible. It's very important to ensure that all the staff in your clinic environment are adequately trained. For medical records, you may consider using intake forms that include both the sex assigned at birth as well as the person's gender identity. When talking to the patient, it's really important to understand what pronouns they use as well as their chosen name. Some other important questions would be, for example, to ask about any surgeries that they've undergone, especially genital surgeries, doing an anatomic inventory, so understanding what organs are still present. And also it is important to understand what sexual behaviors the patient engages in and the genders of their sexual partners. Creating a welcoming environment also includes using language that your patients may prefer. For example, many transmasculine individuals prefer to use chest rather than talking about breasts. Similarly, you can use gender-inclusive language for other body parts, for example, external pelvic area, outer parts, and outer folds instead of talking about vulva and labia. Next, let's talk about approaches for improving uptake of cervical cancer screening amongst transgender men and non-binary individuals. Next, let's talk about some evidence-based approaches that can help us improve rates of cervical cancer screening in transgender men and non-binary patients, including considerations for performing a cervical exam. We've already discussed the importance of using gender-affirming language, for example, the names and pronouns that individuals use and gender-inclusive anatomic terms. It's also important to inquire if the patient would be more comfortable having a trusted friend accompanying them since peer support is known to facilitate uptake of screening. It's important to discuss with patients who are on testosterone that they may have inadequate cytology results and may need to return for repeat testing. One of the other consequences of this is that the exam can sometimes be a little uncomfortable. Another option to improve cervical screening is to offer patients the option for self-collection for high-risk HPV. Several studies have compared vaginal self-swab to provide a collection for high-risk HPV, and it's been found that vaginal self-swabs are 71.5% as sensitive as provider-collected swabs. 
This graph shows one of the first research studies to investigate cervical screening interventions among transgender men. The study was conducted in New York City at the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, and it was part of an ongoing quality improvement project. The rates of uptake and adherence to cervical cancer screening for transmasculine individuals were examined before and after an intervention that included self-collected swabs. Before the intervention was initiated, only 25% of transmasculine patients had cervical cancer screening that was documented in the electronic medical record. And following the implementation of self-swabbing, 51% had a documented cervical cancer screening, which was a twofold increase in the rates of adherence to cervical cancer screening. And that result was statistically significant. To summarize, not only is self-collection preferred by transmasculine individuals, but it's also been shown to positively impact adherence to cancer screening recommendations. In this session, we discuss cervical cancer screening strategies for patients who are transgender men or identify as non-binary, including self-collected swabs for HPV testing. Earlier in the program, we reviewed the correct use of gender-affirming language, and I suggested some approaches to improving inclusiveness in clinical care. I hope that you have learned something in this program that can enhance the care that you provide to transgender and non-binary patients in your practice. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.